week, we, I think when Amanda led one of the, I think the last song, I had told you that I would be recording it and I'd be going to see Kurt. And um, so that was Saturday, a week from, from today, a week ago. So I was able to go there and um, he was still sedated, but he was more lightly sedated. So I told him, hey, we, we miss you, we love you, and I have a short video for you to watch. So I played it, and I played it on as loud as it could go, and so I lifted it up, and he was able to see. Because so, he was lightly sedated, so it's like taking Benadryl. You can try to fight through it, or you can kind of let it you know, let you fall asleep. So he had his eyes open, and he can't talk because he has the, um, the ventilator in. So he can't, you know, he obviously he can't talk, but he's able to, was able to open his eyes. And so I can tell you, because we know Kurt well, and we know that the church is such an important part of his life, and he was moved um, to tears by, by that video. So it, I, I took that as a way of him saying thank you to the church for that. <clears throat> and so, so that's where we are. And, I mean, we, we are a Christian community where we know that there is hope. Where we know that this isn't the end, um, but we're also human, saddled with grief and with sadness. So those are appropriate feelings to have, even though we know um, we know the story, we know how this all ends, we know what the future will look like. We understand and we go by faith, but it's still a very real um, situation that we're going through. And so, with that said, that's where we start. I <laughs> I feel I'm torn. Can I just share with you as my friends? It's, it's hard for me because I know what the Bible says, and I deal with this on an almost daily basis when I'm at the hospital. But when it's someone that's close to us and we love, it makes everything a little bit harder. So, I, you know, I'm struggling with preaching because it's like I have this sermon, but then it's like, it's, it's almost like, ugh, you know? So let's pray, we'll get into this, and then we'll go and see where the Holy Spirit will lead us. Heavenly Father, we know that you are a God who loves us tremendously. Father, we know that your Son has given us the pass to be able to live into eternity. Father, we know where our brother Kurt's future will be, and so we take great comfort in that. But Father, we just pray that you be with his family and with us, his extended family, that you would bring us a measure of comfort, and that you would give us the capacity to continue to believe. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, um, if it's all right with you, I won't share any of my witty jokes. (laughs) But this morning, I want to kind of present to you a blueprint for life. How many of you wish that you could kind of live life on autopilot in such a way where everything went exactly as it was supposed to, everything was always going the right ways, and everything just made sense? How many of you would like that? Yeah, where things just flowed seamlessly. Well, you're in luck because we are getting closer and closer to that. Just this last week, I saw an advertisement on, on, uh, on one of my emails. I get this email. I get tons of emails with all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's the kind of emails you know you should just erase because they're just like, you know, this is a bunch of news articles and stuff, but you, I can't erase them because I feel like I'm going to miss out on the, on the, on the newest news. So I just keep, you know, glancing at them on my phone. But the Mercedes has, has, in a sense, introduced a concept car a while back, and that they are now perfecting. This isn't just a futuristic, awesome-looking Mercedes-Benz. 
and I don't have the picture of the inside, but the inside has four seats, but no driver. If you were to look at the inside of this, and some of you are going to Google it right now or after church, but the seats point towards each other. So in a sense, this is a self-driving car. How would you like that? Everyone's like shaking their heads like, no. But did you know when you fly, your plane's on autopilot most of the time? Did you know that, uh, I think if I, if this is what, I don't know how true this is, okay? So I'm giving that caveat. But I remember I was in an airplane once with a lot of turbulence, and I was sitting next to a guy who says that he's flown for the, for the military, right? Like a lot of these planes. And he's like, oh, this doesn't bother me. Like, you know, the wings are made in such a way that they could actually touch if you were to bend them. So they're not going to break. He says, oh, my, that does, still doesn't help. And he says, if anything, the military, and I, so I don't know how true this is because I'm not in the military, so. But he says, oftentimes when the weather is really bad, they force us to land on autopilot because the plane is better at landing than a human could at times. So we're already halfway there. If anything, I mean, this might avoid car accidents. You know, how many times have you been in a car accident thinking you knew exactly like what was in front of you, but then out of nowhere, they slam on their brakes? So there is this car, and, they're plan- and it's out on the streets, okay? So probably not around here, but it's out somewhere, and it's being tested. And sometimes I wish, I wish life was just like this. An auto-driving car, but for every aspect of my life. So that all of the decisions that I make would be the right ones. All of the investments we make would be the right ones. Every decision, everything we did, that it would just be flawless and seamless. Wouldn't we all want that in a sense? knowing that every decision that you make is the right one. So maybe we're not comfortable with driving cars or self-driving cars. And maybe we know that life can't be flawless and it can't be seamless. But if we look at Scripture, we can see that there is some biblical evidence to show that there is a way for us to live a life that is one of the best possible lives that we can live. So if you will turn with me, this morning we don't have... I decided not to use the PowerPoint because so, it's a lot of reading. So this morning, if you'll just pull your red Bible out. I know it might be small for some of you to read, but if it's small for some of you to read, I'll just trust that you've been in church a long, long time and you know these stories. So we ask that you just follow along in your memory. <laughs> if you open up your Bible to page 7, Page 7 in the Red Bibles. That's the New International Version. That's the version that I'll be reading from, the NIV, the New International Version. Genesis chapter 12. We are continuing our series, The Sins of Our Fathers and Mothers. And again, it's, it's an understanding that the Bible heroes that we kind of we refer to, the people that we point as the, the heroes of our faith, people in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, that we remember all of the good things they did, but they were also very human, and they often sinned as well, and we can learn from their sins because we are just like them. And one of the things that we keep finding is that even though they sinned, and some of them were pretty like egregious sins, God still has grace on them, and God still has a plan for them, and we find great comfort in knowing that even when we're not perfect, God still gives us grace. So if you'll open up your Bible to page 7, Genesis chapter 12, we're going to be looking at at parts of the story of Abraham. Now we're going to be doing a little bit of reading, so we have plenty of time for this. Follow along, because it'll kind of help you to follow along with what's happening, and then we're going to make some uh, kind of practical points to this. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. 
Well, we'll start at verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And here's the promise and the prophecy. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God comes to Abraham, and he says, I am going to make you into a great people. Remember last week we said that in in biblical times, and even now, passing your name on was of the most importance. So you wanted to have sons. If you see any of these like time period movies, they always make a big deal about their sons, not so much the daughters, because the inheritance and the lineage went with the father's sons. So God comes to Abraham and he says, leave everything you know, and I am going to make you into a great nation. That's the promise. I mean, that's more than being wealthy. He says, you will have sons. All right, so that's the first promise. Now turn over to page 10. Genesis 15, verse 1. Okay, you can, read, you can fill in the story later, but this is kind of keeping with this. After this, verse 1, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward is great. But Abram said to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. It was like a family member. I won't get into how it happened, but if you don't have a son, it wouldn't necessarily go to your daughter. I know times have changed. Um, and it would go to a different family member. So he says, I remain childless. Verse 3. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my house will be my heir. Remember, um, Abraham has a child with one of their servants. His name is Ishmael. So he's referring to that. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. And God says, this man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. God took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can even count them. Then he says, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's promise number two. It's the same promise. I will make your descendants as countless as the stars. And the idea behind this is you can't number the stars. How many of you have ever tried to number the stars? You can't. It's impossible. And that was the point. That was the promise. Abraham, I am going to make you into a great people if only you will trust me. And Abraham believed him. This belief isn't just, okay, God, I believe you. It's an active belief. It's an active verb. So then go to Genesis chapter 17. It it might be on the same page. It's page, uh, yeah, page 11. Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old. Now, now, when Abraham is 99 years old, 13 years before that, um, his servant had given birth to Ishmael. So this was 13 years between that, okay? 13 years from the time God said, I will make you numerous people. So when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. And this is what God says. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As as for me, this is my covenant or my promise or my deal with you. 
You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien or a stranger or a sojourner, I will, give it, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Some of what the Bible commentators will say is from the time that he had Ishmael until the time that we read what we just read, which is promise number three, was 13 years in a sense of silence. God had already promised Abraham, I'm going to give all of this to you. I am going to give all of this to you. You are going to have many, many children. And then there's this 13 years of what we, what we understand as silence, right? Nothing really happened in those 13 years that, that made it into the Bible. Abraham had to put his hope, in a sense, on Ishmael. At 13 years old, something special happened, and a, a Jewish boy or a Hebrew boy would become a man and, in a sense, would carry the father's name. And it was at that time that God comes back to Abraham, and he reminds him, I will make you into a great people, and a lot of kings and rulers and important people will come from you. 13 years of silence and impatience. You know, this morning, the sermon is titled, The Sin of Impatience. I'm not saying that to be impatient is sinful, okay? Before you go and you say, our pastor said that being impatient is sinful. It's kind of a play on words, okay? But 13 years of silence. Here's the second point on this last verse that we just read. God changes Abram's name. Usually when Bible characters have a change of name, it's because they have been encountered by God and God is doing something new in their lives. Something is happening. It's kind of sealing that promise and that covenant. So God says, your name is no longer Abram, it is Abraham. And, it, and the word Abraham, or the, word, the name Abraham means a father of multitudes, a father of many. Now think of this. How many sons does Abraham have at this point? One, but he doesn't really count because he's a servant's like, son. So he's kind of like, you know, the, the uncle no one talks about, right? Or the family member we don't really talk about. He's, he's, you know, he's there, but he's not really there. And, and the Bible tells us that, that's, that Sarai, or Sarah, who she'll become Sarah, would treat Hagar really badly and Ishmael. So they were kind of like, you know, they were just pushed off to the side. So he has no sons, in a sense. Here's what's interesting. God changes Abram's name to Abraham, the father of multitudes. Now think about this. When you go to, uh, I don't know, maybe you meet someone at the grocery store and you're talking Oh, hi, my name, my name is a father of, a, of many. What would be your first question? Because for us, Abraham, we don't get the, you know, in the Hebrew, they would know. What is your first question? Oh, you're a father of multitudes. What's your first question? How many kids do you have? Wow, how many kids do you have? And what does he respond? Well, no, because then he's like, well, one, but you see, it's, it was my, my wife told me to have a son with my servant. I mean, you don't tell that story. That's the story you don't tell. That's shameful. Even back then. Oh, well, I don't have any sons. You see, God changes his name, I think, intentionally before he even has his, his son, who would be Isaac. Because he wanted to see if he would continue to believe in God, even at such a time in his life when it was difficult for him to believe. 
Look, when God comes to you in the beginning, he says, I have this great, this, I have this vision for your life and this purpose, and you are going to live this way. What do we do? We're excited. We are ready to go. We are on fire for the Lord. I remember when, when, I, was, when I felt the call to be a pastor, I was an undergraduate, kind of like, I was a little bit younger than Brett. I was 18 years old. I really felt that call. And I was already into my second year of college, right? So I had to switch. I had a, it was just a lot of extra classes to take, and it was just horrible. And I remember being on fire, and I get to the end of school, and, and you know how Brett just interviewed, right? He interviewed, we, I interviewed around the same time, and I didn't get a call, which means I didn't get hired by any conference. And I remember like, is this really what God wants me to do? I remember my, um, my oldest brother, our half-brother, he was, it was during the time when real estate was doing really well, and he was like, look, come, you can work with me, you can make a lot of money, you can save it up, and then you can go to seminary. And I was thinking about that. Because no one, why go to seminary and you didn't even get a job to begin with? And I was working at a church. I was at Anaheim at the Sunkist Church. I was learning everything. I was, had the opportunity to preach. I sat in on board meetings. I had members, you know, yell at me and hate me. I mean, I had the full experience of pastoral ministry, you know. You're laughing, but it's true. <laughs> it's only funny because it's true. And I remember I had to make that decision, and I remember it was summertime, and seminary was going to start in a couple of weeks, and I was vacillating back and forth. Do I want to go to seminary? Do I not? You know, I feel this call on my life. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to take out the loans that I need to, whatever I can't afford. I mean, we are, I'm going to do this. I feel that God is calling me to do this. And I remember, and I think I've told you this story, but what, what our conference here does um, Ernie Furness was my mentor back then, and he's now like our pastor's pastor. So he would come out to seminary once a quarter, and he would take all of the pastors who the, the Southeastern Conference had already hired, and he would take them and their spouses to dinner. You know, it was always a nice dinner, you know, semi-nice. I mean, you know, Olive Garden, I don't know. And I remember he would always call me, and he'd say, hey, I want you to come. And I'd be like, okay. The first time I was like, okay, awesome. You know, I'm homesick. I'll come. But I hated it because at the end, it was like, all these guys and girls, they have jobs and I don't. So I always feel really down for a couple of days and, oh, woe is me, you know, God. Why do you have me here? I'm going to quit. I'm going to go do something, you know, else. But I kept maintaining that call. And it wasn't easy because I would often get mad at God. Like, why do you have me here? I interviewed for a job in Yuma, Arizona, which I knew I wasn't the right fit. But like, when you don't have a job, you'll just go anywhere, which is why I went to El Centro and Brawley. But, you know, you'll do whatever it takes. And you begin to lose faith in the promise and in the calling that God has on your life. And the longer that the time goes, it gets harder and harder. And when things aren't going the way you want them to go, it gets difficult. Thankfully, my story doesn't end with me not having a job. But the month before graduation, I received a call from the same guy. And he says, hey, we'd like you to, to take the position in Brawley and El Centro. And um, he made a joke about where it was. And I didn't know. And I said, great, I'll take it. It doesn't matter. You know, I'm called. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved living in the desert where it was 127 degrees. <laughs> and they still expected me to wear a sport coat. No, they didn't. And I loved it. And I loved the people there. And I still, I don't go back anymore because some of the closest friends I had have moved out of, out of the area. But I loved it there. And that was formative years for my ministry. But it was, it was hard waiting to get that call. I had given up hope. I was, I was deciding whether I was going to start a Ph.D. program so that I could continue to do something instead of just waiting on the Lord. And that's what happens in our lives. Just like it happened for Abraham. 
God, God kind of leads us through these times in our lives, but God keeps asking us to keep having faith, to keep believing. So when he changes Abraham's name to a father of multitudes, I can only imagine what he was thinking. He changes his name, and when he says, he says, walk before me and be blameless, he's not saying be perfect. This was a biblical way of saying, follow me. Follow me. Trust me. Let me be your guide. Jesus echoes this kind of sentiment when he comes to his disciples and he says, come, follow me. That's all God is asking us to do. He doesn't need you to know the future. He is simply asking you to trust him. If you look in your Bibles, keep your fingers there, but if you turn to page 451, 451, Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. The Hebrew word here for the word all, you know, it says all your ways, means all. In every aspect of your life, try to trust the Lord. I know how difficult that is. Because I often try to put myself in the place of God. Well, I know what to do next, Lord, and I know how to make my plans, and I know how to do this, and I know how to do that. But God's not asking you to set up your five-year plan. I mean, God says, like, go for it, but if it's not what I really want for you, it's not going to happen. And oftentimes, if we try to set our own path, we may miss out on the blessing that God has for us. Not because God is saying, well, I'm not going to bless you, but because there is a bigger blessing on another path. And the Bible says, trust the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. Lean not just on your own understandings because you can't see the future. So when God tells Abraham, I will make you into a great multitude, your name is now father of many. That was God asking Abraham to keep believing the promise that years before God had promised him. But I think oftentimes God asks us to believe in the impossible because the witness that we have as a result of impossible things becomes even better. See, if God had given Abraham a son at the age of, of 30, well, that's normal. Probably even younger than that they started, you know. People would get married even younger. But let's say God had given Abraham, said at age 30, hey, I'm going to give you a great big, great big offspring. And at 30, he has these kids. Abraham's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly how it was supposed to happen. There would be no real faith. But God waits until he's 99 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. For some of you who are a little more advanced in age and you think, well, what can God do with me now? God can do amazing things through you. Because God doesn't care about the age of a person. God is outside of time. And so God will use you at any time in your life as long as you will follow and trust God. Now let's go to page 11. Back to page 11, Genesis 17. Three times God promised, or that's the second promise. Genesis 17, verse 15. That's three promises, and now we keep going. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. 
Abraham fell face down and he laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Ishmael was Abraham's way of trying to fulfill God's promise before it was time. Ishmael represents for Abraham what you do when you don't follow what God wants for you to do. Now, that's not Ishmael's fault. Ishmael, the Bible says that God would also make him and bless him into many, many nations and many people as well. The Bible says that he would have his hand against others and their hand would be against his. But Ishmael is still blessed in his offspring as well. But Abraham says, look, Lord, just save, save yourself the trouble. Don't do the impossible. Just bless Ishmael and we'll go from there. Again, Abraham is trying to take life into his own hands away from God. Then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And that's when he says, As for Ishmael, I have heard you, and I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful. I will greatly increase his numbers, and he will be the father of twelve rulers, and, he will make, and I will make him into a great nation. Abraham laughs. I remember when we were reading this through our daily Bible, I remember underlining that part, how Abraham laughs at the audacity of what God is telling him. How many of you have ever had a thought in your life and said, maybe I want to pursue this kind of ministry, or maybe I want to do this, or maybe God puts something on your heart, and all you can think about is that seems impossible. That just seems like way too hard. But if God puts that on your heart, God will help you to see it through, too, through fruition. Here's what I say. If, if your dream or your desire or the vision that God has put on your life, if it's doable by breaking it down into doable steps, then it's not from God. But if it is bigger and greater than you feel like you are able to do alone, then I truly believe that that is God putting that on your heart. It's when things look bleak and impossible that I believe God has the power to really shine through and work. It doesn't mean that everything will turn out well. It doesn't mean that you'll never face hardship. It doesn't mean that we won't experience suffering and pain. If anyone ever teaches you that if you follow Christ, everything will be good and great, they're telling you a lie, and it's not biblical. The central story of our faith is that an innocent man lays down his life. So if you think that as a Christian you will live a life absence of pain, absence of sorrow, that is a false gospel. The truth is that things will happen in our lives, but we can keep having faith that God in the end works everything out. That in the end, we will, be, we will rise again and we will live in the eternal kingdom and the age that is to come. And this will be nothing. The Bible says that your momentary suffering that you feel now does not compare to the eternal glory you will have with Christ in eternity. So as difficult and as painful as things happen now, and I know things are painful, it's momentary, it's temporary, because the eternal weight of glory is far greater. Let's keep going. We still have a few more to go. So Abraham laughs at God. Now let's go to eight, chapter 18. So the same page, chapter 18, verse 9. 
Um, there's, here's the story, because I'm not reading all of it. There's three men that we think are three angels, is what we understand. And they're coming along the road. Abraham sees them. He says, hey, guys, come, bless me. Be here. Let me make you guys food. So they come in, and, you know, they weren't going to pass by Abraham's house. It was just, just how the story's told. So they said, where is your wife, Sarah? And they asked him, she's there in the tent. The Lord said, so see the Lord. Now this is God speaking through them. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. 99 years old, Sarah's 90, so at 91, she would have a son. Abraham would be 100. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah, was already, Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. Sarah was past the age of childbearing, right? So she can't have kids anymore. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, how will I have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? And listen to this. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did. (laughs) I love that. That's like comedy in scripture. (laughs) Is anything too hard for the Lord? Just because things don't go the way you want them to doesn't mean they're not going the way they're supposed to be going. And just because Sarah and Abraham had a hard time believing that God would be faithful to fulfill his promises doesn't mean that it wasn't all happening in God's time. They were impatient. They tried to find ways around the way God wanted them to. But anytime you do that, you will miss out on the bigger blessing. We have a hard time trusting We have a hard time believing that God will do what he says, even though we have all of the stories. In the Old Testament, if you've been reading the one-year Bible, you will see that God continually qualifies himself by saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. He's saying, I am that God who did the impossible when you had already given up hope. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also impossibilities. God continues to qualify himself, say, don't forget what I've done for you. But we have this tendency, this short-term memory loss, where we forget what God has done even in our own life. Now, you can either look at the pain and the loss in your life and say, God must not exist because of that. But the Bible never says that God would keep you from all pain and suffering. The Bible tells us that there will be pain and suffering, but that will be nothing compared to the weight of eternal glory. So if people, if you want to give up faith on God because there's pain, loss, and suffering, well, then you're not really believing in God for who he is. You're believing in God for what you can get out of him. God's already given you life. He's already blessed you with having breath. I can tell you that we take our breath for granted, especially in the situation that we're going through. I remember running yesterday and thinking to myself, thank you, Father, that my lungs are working today take for granted so much of our lives because we want more and more and more or we want things this way and this way and this way and God says forget what you want just learn to follow me and I promise you I will lead you down the path you need to go down I will help you and I will help you to persevere it says lean not on your own understanding 
And so God tells Abraham, follow me, trust me, remember where I have brought you. And remember, Abraham was a very wealthy, wealthy man. The Bible tells us that he had all sorts of livestock, he had all sorts of servants, he had every, I mean, he was wealthier than some kings were. So he was living a good life. So the fact that God had already blessed him, so he's like, yo, just keep trusting me. But Abraham wanted more. This morning, my invitation is that you would learn to trust God. And if you don't want to take my word for it, I invite you to open to page 817. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. In the verses before this, Paul has been saying that he was going to... Basically, Paul says, when human beings make plans, we can say that we are going to do something. But when human beings make plans, sometimes we change our mind, things come up, and they prevent us from following through with our plans. So that's when, when Paul says a human, a human word is yes and no, which means, yes, we're going to do this, but sometimes it becomes no, we forgot, no, we ran out of time, no plans change, I changed my mind. Right? So he's kind of setting up that this is how human beings are. But in chapter 1, verse 19, he says that's how humans are. But this God, this Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not a God who says yes and no, like he doesn't change his mind, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Every promise God makes, he is faithful to fulfill it. And through him, the amen, the glory, the honor, the worship spoken by us is for the glory of God. God's yes is always yes. And if you read scripture, it is a story after story after story of God making a promise and God fulfilling it, especially in the Old Testament. Now, people in the Old Testament, they would keep going their own way. They would, keep, they would stop believing that what God said is true. But it is a story of God making promises and keeping them. And in the New Testament, Jesus makes new sets of promises. Jesus promises that all who believe will have eternal life. So if God was faithful in the Old Testament, God is faithful in the New Testament. For all who believe, salvation would be given. And I'll finish with this last verse in Hebrews that we read last night. Hebrews chapter 11, that's page 852 in your Red Bibles. Hebrews chapter 11 is what we know as the chapter, the Hall of Faith. It's name after name after name after name after name of people who have been faithful to God. It wasn't people who were perfect. Okay, no one in the Bible except for Jesus was perfect. But these were people who kept being faithful and following God. And one of the things that this tells us is that all of these people were faithful, but they didn't get to see the promise that God had for them. But verse 40 says this, God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would these plans be made perfect. Do you get the depth of that? God has planned something for us, for you and for me, but they can only be fulfilled together with us. Somehow in God's infinite love and mercy and grace, God cares about you, and he has a plan for you, and he has a purpose for you. But those plans and purposes will only come to realization when you surrender your life to God and follow him.
It's not always easy. Sure, it will sometimes veer off the path. But I also believe that as long as we are willing to surrender, God will continue to lead us. And sometimes he'll let you have your own way. But just because he lets you have your own way doesn't mean that's the plan. Ultimately, we will, we will suffer the consequences of some of those decisions. But as long as we surrender, God will continue to lead us.